Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Turn to Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse... The thing to note this morning is that we never have problems with PowerPoint, and we never have problems with our sound system. And that's true. And so actually, the ringing and the absence of the PowerPoint today reminds me that we never have problems. And I'm so thankful for you guys and your work. So don't worry. You do good work, and if something's wrong today, it don't bother, it don't matter. All right, let's hear the word of God from Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 to 16. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well... Will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. And its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? He said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of God. Please be seated. Last week, we ended our study of the history of the fall, the history of creation, the history of the fall, the first three chapters of the book of Genesis, which is the beginning. Adam sinned, and the consequences of his sin were awful for him, and then they were awful because of him. They were awful for his wife Eve, and ever since his sin, the consequences have been terrible for all men. 
and I'm using the word men inclusive of men and women. God had warned Adam that the day he ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And God has kept his word. From Adam to you to me, our children, our grandchildren, our great-great-great-grandchildren, we die. Man dies, and that is the inevitable horror that waits each of us. To finally have these mortal bodies breathe their last and be buried in the ground to return to dust, the same dust from which we came. And this is the end of God's curse of Adam. He says, by the sweat of your face, the previous chapter, verse 19, by the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And this is what we say at, at the graveside service, the committal service, of every person that's buried. From dust you came, and to dust you will go. Life ends in death. All life. Your life and my life, and then after death comes the judgment. Hebrews 9.27 says, It is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And as our lives approach the judgment, what do we find? Are we without fear? Do we find ourselves clean and honorable and holy? Are we without shame over our thoughts and our actions? Have we raised our children well? Have we served our wife lovingly? Have we submitted to our husband in all things? Do we work as unto the Lord, or are we man-pleasers? Only with our eye for our boss instead of our eye for God in the way we do our work. Are we without jealousy and envy and bitterness? Are we free from the idolatry of money? From the idolatry of alcohol, of dope, of antidepressants? Have we killed lust, dead, 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 in our hearts? Do we love our neighbor with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength if we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And now you find out why death is a terror for us. Because the answer to these questions is no, 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 and no. We tremble when we face the grave and we contemplate standing soon before the perfectly, perfectly holy God where he will judge our minds and our hearts and our entire life, where he says that he will judge the most terrible statement of Scripture, every idle word. 
not malicious, not hostile, every idle word. This is the condition of every man. He may deny his fear and terror. Many men do. Many men will. He may say he's not afraid of death, but you can absolutely count on it that he is afraid of death. Death is an enemy. And had Adam not died, that enemy would not have existed. And we know that death is unnatural. And so we flee to Jesus and his righteousness and cross because of the fall. Because of the fall of our federal head, Adam, which left us and every man and every woman fallen, corrupt, and headed for judgment. Even unborn babies have inherited the corruption of original sin and must face death and judgment. Even unborn babies are the race of Adam and therefore receive the consequences of Adam's federal headship over all his race. Every last one of us, this is what scripture says, Psalm 51.5, Behold, says David, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. He's not talking about his mother's sin, he's not saying sex is dirty. He's saying that from the moment of conception, when I was conceived in the dark places of my mother's womb, I was in sin. There in his mother's womb, King David was not monkey. He was not protoplasm. He was not nothingness. He was a person created in the image of God from the moment of conception. He was man, and therefore he was, he says, in sin. And therefore, under God's judgment. And since the fall, this has been the condition of every man. Thus it says in Romans 5.12, Through one man, sin entered the world, that man being Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And thus it is that Scripture makes this categorical statement about you and me. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is the reason that death is our enemy. It's not because of separation for loved ones, although that is terrible. The real reason death is an enemy is that death is the last thing before judgment. And every man has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And this is what God cannot and will not stand. He is holy. He is perfectly, perfectly holy. And he will not put up with the smallest blemish in his presence. And we are nothing but blemishes. We are nothing but horrible stains, one after another, to infinity, 
Because every last one of those blemishes, those corruptions, those sins is against an infinitely holy God and therefore it is infinitely filthy and corrupt. And this is the reason we see just the angels coming from the presence of God. When any man or woman is in the presence of those angels, he falls down on his face. He's terror-stricken just because of the reflective holiness of God in the angel. Imagine standing before God himself in all his holiness. And so hell, banishment from the presence of God to eternal suffering is the only possible destination for sinful man. We had heaven, perfection in the Garden of Eden, but in our federal head Adam, we chose hell. And that is where we are now bound, every single human being, because of our corruption. The end point of all man is death, judgment, and then hell for all eternity. And that end point is fast approaching. But there is a way of escape. And that way is Jesus Christ. The Christian good news and we call it the gospel, which just means good news. The Christian good news is that man who has no hope of righteousness and therefore nothing to look forward to but death, judgment, and hell, that this very man, so very corrupt and hopeless, has been and is the object of God's infinite love, and he has made a way for us to become righteous. And to enter his presence following death, dressed in that righteousness. The way, the path, the hope, is God's only begotten Son, the only Lord Jesus Christ. God sent his Son here to earth to do right what Adam did wrong. Horribly, horribly wrong. God sent his son here to earth to take on the flesh of man and to live a life of perfect obedience to his father. The life of perfect obedience that no man has ever lived from Adam and Eve down to you and me. And then following his life of perfect obedience, God sent his beloved son to the cross to pay the penalty for our wickedness. When Jesus died on the cross, he wasn't paying the penalty for his own sin. He was sinless. You remember what John the Baptist said when he saw Jesus. He pointed to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And you know that lambs couldn't be given that had one spot or blemish on them. God only receives perfection. And so Jesus deserved no death. His life was perfectly obedient. And so why did he die? He died for you, and he died for me, because we deserve death. He didn't deserve death, and so he went to the cross, and on the cross, he bore your sin. He paid the penalty of your sin. He turned the wrath of his Father away from you. He took his righteousness to the cross, 
took your judgment upon himself, and now all those who look at him in faith are dressed in his blood, his righteousness. And when they die, they stand before the holy God, and Jesus says, that one belongs to me. And do you think his father will listen to him? Do you think a father who has the perfect obedience of his son listens to his son? Do you think a father whose son went to the cross out of obedience to him, do you think that father will see you righteous if he says, that one belongs to me? First Peter 2.24 says, He himself, up on the cross, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore your sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you are healed. And that's the gospel. By his wounds you are healed, but not all of you. Not every man. Most men in the past refused to turn for their sin to Jesus. And most men still today still refuse to turn from their sin to Jesus. That's the depth of the human pride. Most men choose wickedness. Most men choose jealousy and hatred and murder and refusing to come to repentance and faith in the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ. Most men go to death and to judgment and to hell without hope. They're terror-stricken. And yet they keep a stiff upper lip and they tell you they're not afraid to die. But those of us who trust in Jesus, those of us who have come to him in our dirt and our filth, our moral squalor, our wickedness, and have placed our hope in his cleanliness, in his moral perfection, his absolute righteousness, and then his death for us on the cross. We, I say, who have come to Jesus as our only hope in life and in death may walk through the valley of the shadow of death without fear. Because we know that our Redeemer lives. And because we know when we are ushered into the presence of that Redeemer, Jesus, the Son of God, will declare us to be washed in his blood and righteousness, and therefore clean. Perfect. Perfectly holy. God will hear the voice of his Son. God will see that we are dressed in the righteousness of his Son. White. And God will welcome us back into his presence from which every man had been expelled when Adam was expelled and barred from the Garden of Eden. And so in the previous chapter, at the very end of the previous chapter, the verses just before we picked up today, 
we read, Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. And then it says, verse 24, So he drove the man out. Drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. And here is where our study of the historical account of the fall picks up today. Just as Adam and his wife Eve have been expelled from the Garden of Eden, have been expelled from perfect presence of the Lord, intimacy, have been expelled from heaven. In Adam, all men and women became corrupt, and we see this immediately. Just as they're expelled from the Garden of Eden, we see it in the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain and Abel. Fresh out of Eden, one brother hates and kills the other. Now the man, verse 1, had relations with his wife Eve. In the King James, it says the man knew his wife. And this is a way we say they had intercourse, sexual intercourse. In Scripture, to know somebody else is the way that Scripture refers to physical intimacy of a man and his wife. Now, interestingly, almost never does it say know somebody else to refer to the sex of unmarried couple. If they're fornicating, almost never does it give it the dignity of knowledge. This construction, Adam knew his wife, is reserved for marriage. Why? Well, because it's referring to the most intimate knowledge of a man and a woman can ever have, a husband and wife for one another. And what does that intimacy require? It requires commitment until death. How do you know somebody you have not promised until death us will never part? And so when Scripture refers to homosexual relations, when it refers to adultery, when it refers to fornication, it doesn't dignify it by speaking of it as knowing. And this is, of course, true. <laughs> you know, you think about it. You may be infatuated with a woman you're not married to, but you don't love her. You don't love her. Now, how could I say such a nasty thing? Well, because of what Bonhoeffer says, which is what? He says, love doesn't make the marriage. Love doesn't make the marriage. He says, marriage makes the love. And so Adam and Eve were in love, and they knew, knew, <laughs> if you're married, laugh with me, <laughs> they knew each other. In high school, we used to sometimes joke with each other about, well, you know, no in the biblical sense. Adam knew his wife. And boy, you do know someone when you go to bed with them, don't you? Now, the man had relations, or 
Literally, he knew his wife Eve, and what? She conceived and gave birth to Cain. And so she must have conceived Cain, right? She conceived and gave birth to Cain. When she conceived, it was Cain. When she gave birth, it was Cain. Wasn't a monkey. Wasn't protoplasm. She conceived Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. The help of is supplied. It's not in the Hebrew. It's just in the Hebrew it says, I've gotten a man-child with the Lord. And so some people say that she was bragging that she had done what God had done. I don't think so. I don't think ever, any woman who's ever come through labor is feeling proud of the fact that she's equal with God. I think labor proves to her, her who she is right? And so what Eve is really saying is Eve is saying, God has blessed me with the ability of giving birth to life. I'm now a life giver as God is. And this is the, (laughs) and I know you're going to think I'm patronizing. You're going to think I'm condescending and all this stuff. You're going to think I'm a man that wants every woman to be pregnant. And I do. But not because I think it's demeaning, but because I think it's such a glorious, glorious gift that God would allow a human being to give life. It's so glorious. And so look at the woman. She is just filled with joy that God has enabled her to give birth to life. Now what about the man? Well... I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. And listen to what Calvin says here. Um, Calvin says about this text, we must glorify God principally for progeny, and progeny means um, descendants and children. We must glorify God principally. In other words, the first thing we glorify him for in our natural life, we're not talking about for the gift of his son, but in the natural world, there's no higher gift than the ability to have children. More than for other things, he says, for it is a singular honor that he bestows upon men when he decrees that they be fathers with him. For that distinction is proper to him. And when he shares it with mortal creatures, that means dying creatures, he gives them great honor. And so it's not just that Eve has a tremendous blessing and privilege to be able to give birth to life, but it's also that Adam has an unbelievable privilege of being able to what? To to be a father like God. God allows Adam to partake of fatherhood, which is intrinsic to God, but only delegated to man. It's just an incredible thing to think that God has allowed us to do this. Adam and Eve and his wife. Verse 2, again she gave birth to his brother, Cain's brother Abel. And then it says this about the two of them. It says, Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Both were, both are honorable callings. We are not 
to see here any explanation of the historic division between ranchers and farmers that is the plot of every American Western movie. All right? Men will fight over every difference between them. Stephen's linear, I'm dynamic, and I'm superior to Stephen, and Stephen's superior to me. In the upper room, right before Christ's crucifixion, it says, and there arose a striving amongst them as to who will be the greater. And so, if it's skin color, we'll fight over skin color. White is black, black is white, white is superior to black, black is... If it's race, if it's ethnicity, if it's countries, right? If it is building trades, all the building trades spit on the sheetrockers, okay? And there's a perfect hatred between painters and electricians. I asked Bob beforehand, that's, he tells me that's true. And so when it comes to the distinction between farmers and ranchers, between those that work with plants and are gardeners and those that work with an animals and are husbandmen, they hate each other because they're different. But that's not the point of the account here. And we'll come back to that. It's also not the point of the distinction in the sacrifices. Verse 3, so it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And then it says, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now here, original sin shows its horrid face. One of the sons, the younger, Abel, offers a sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. That's what it means when it says the Lord had regard for his sacrifice. And the other son, Cain, offers a sacrifice that did not please the Lord, and that's why the Lord did not have regard for that sacrifice. Now why did God accept the sacrifice of Abel, but not the sacrifice of Cain? Well, if instead of uh, speculating, you take the text and study it, there's really only one reason given. And what is the reason? Well, we see that Cain is said to bring an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground, but then when it talks about Abel's offering, it says, Abel is said to bring of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Well, on the one hand, you have fruit, and on the other hand, you have meat, right? And so what everybody wants to say is, well, you know, since without the shedding of blood, there will be no forgiveness of sin, since Jesus was, uh, unless we eat his body and drink his blood. Well, this, this sacrifice of Abel pointed more completely to the death of Christ and therefore was a superior sacrifice. God accepted that sacrifice because it was meat and it was blood. And, and Cain only brought fruit. But look, all through the Old Testament, we see that God is pleased to receive fruit. All through the Old Testament, we have grain offerings brought. We have meal offerings, right? We have oil. And so God is perfectly pleased to receive both the wealth of the gardener and the wealth of the shepherd. And to have those things be worshipped. 
So then what is the issue? Well, notice, it doesn't just say that he brought animals or meat, does it? It says he brought of his firstlings, and he brought what? He brought fat. Now let's deal with the First, let's deal with the firstlings. Okay. When Mary Lee and I were first married, um, we fought all the time over everything, including how fast we walked. She was short, I was tall. I wouldn't slow down, she wouldn't speed up. It took us about 10 years. We're working pretty well together now. One of the things we fought over was tithing. We knew that we should worship the Lord with our wealth, but we felt pretty poor. And so every month we'd recommit ourselves to giving money to God, and at the end of every month we'd look at what we'd done with our money and nothing had gone to God. And so then I did what every man should do, you know, Right? You all know, right? I yelled at Mary Lee, you know? What's wrong with you? I thought we were going to give money this month. And I don't know how long it went off, but went on. But then one, one day we were outside of the uh, supermarket right at the, foot of, uh, <coughs> right at the foot of Shorewood Hills. I can see exactly where we were who was face which way. We were going in the store, and somehow an oracle of Delphi spoke to us and told us that what we needed to do was give the money to God at the beginning of the month and then see whether or not we had enough money to go to McDonald's at the end of the month. Instead of going to McDonald's at the beginning of the month and then seeing if we had enough money for God at the end of the month. It was unbelievable. It just solved that fight. Very sweet. That's what it means when it says Abel brought the firstlings. The first little lambs born to his sheep went to God. He didn't wait and see whether he could afford to give to God, but he gave what? He gave by faith. He trusted God with his money and was all in. So that's the first thing. The second thing is the fat. Now, what's it about the fat? Well, every man that hasn't been browbeaten by his wife knows what it is about is the fat. Right? You know, she'll take away every pleasure she can. Don't let her. Every man has a right to eat a porterhouse. Not a sirloin that's bragged about on the menu as being extra lean. <coughs> Who needs lean meat? Lean meat has to have Worcestershire sauce. Lean meat has to be filled up with every kind of lean beef, ground beef. It's awful. What's the point of eating beef if it doesn't taste good? And what makes beef taste good is what? Fat. 
And so all through the Old Testament, God claims what? God claims the fat for himself. Isn't that interesting? God says, the fat belongs to me. Leviticus, or excuse me. Yes, first Exodus and Leviticus. Exodus 29, 13, you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the lobe of the liver and the two kidneys and the fat that is on them and offer them up in smoke on the altar. And then Leviticus 3, 3 to 5, from the sacrifice of the peace offerings, he shall present an offering by fire to the Lord. To the Lord, not to himself. The fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them, which is on the loins, and the lobe of the liver, which he shall remove with the kidneys. And then listen to this. Then Aaron's son shall offer it up in smoke on the altar, on the burnt offering, which is on the wood that is on the fire. It is an offering by fire of what? Of a soothing aroma to God. God wants the fat, and God loves the smell of the fat. All through the Old Testament, we read that the fat belongs to God. Fat is what gives the porterhouse steak such good smell and taste, and this is what Abel gave to God. And so what do we see with Abel? We see that Abel has heart service, not lip service. Abel's not hedging his bets with his gifts to God. Abel's not giving God lean sirloin. He's giving him porterhouse, and he's giving him the first birth lambs of the, of the spring. And what about Cain? Well, all it says about Cain is that he, he gave of his wealth. It doesn't say that he gave fat. Well, of course not, because it was fruit. It was grain. It doesn't say that he gave his first fruits. And listen, if you read what Scripture says about giving grain and meal offerings, it does say the early grain, which is the first fruits. In other words, in the Old Testament, it stipulates between the late grain and the early grain. And so it could very easily have been that Cain also gave of his first fruits. And it would have been said he gave of his first fruits, and it would have been said about Abel that he gave of his firstlings and of his fat. But it doesn't say that about Cain. It does not commend his sacrifice. Although it commends Abel's sacrifice, and so what we know is that Cain did not worship God, and God didn't receive his worship. And we know that Abel did worship God, and God received his worship. In other words, we know that Cain gave lip service, and that Abel gave his heart. And so in Hebrews 11, verse 4, it says, By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he is dead, he still speaks. 
You want to meet him? It'll happen in heaven. So Abel's sacrifice was from the heart. And listen, God does not receive worship that isn't from the heart. God does not receive lip service. He says, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, you always say the temple of the Lord, away from me with your offerings, your sacrifices, your music. I cannot abide listening to it. Why? Because it was lip service. God wants our hearts in worship. So now seeing that God accepted his brother's sacrifice, but not his sacrifice, how does Cain respond? Well, verse 5 tells us, with anger and dejection, it says, for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. And then it says, so Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Now, what does a fallen countenance look like? Well, here is a, a risen Right? In other words, he's depressed, he's dejected, he's discouraged. He's angry and depressed. And so God sees it. It is mind-boggling to me how, how hard many mothers and fathers work to not see the faces of their children. I mean, children tell you so much through their faces. And parents are so oblivious to it. It must be that parents want not to see the faces of their children. Because I, I keep trying to get you, deal with your children's faces. It's so, so helpful because then you, you get them before you're dealing with their hands. Right, 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 right. God saw the face. And so God dealt with it. He's a good father. And this is what he said, verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Excuse me, but duh. God saw the face and he said, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Don't ever tell me you can't discipline the face of your children. Don't tell me you don't see. All right, I'm done with that. And then he says, verse 7, if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, but you must master it. In other words, sin is like a wild animal. And that's what it says in 1 Peter, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. But resist him firm in your faith. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. And so did Cain resist the devil? God saw his face. God said, cheer up, resist the devil, and your face will be happy. Give in to sin, your face will be sad. So did Cain master the sin crouching at his door? Well, James 1, 14 and 15, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. And then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. 
And so it was with Cain and Abel. Lust conceived, it gave birth to sin, and that sin was accomplished, and it brought forth death. And so here we have the first physical fulfillment of God's promise to Adam that he would die. Yet what horror. Because it wasn't Adam, but it was his precious son. And not only that, but his precious son died at the hands of man rather than God. And not only that, but the man who murdered him was his own brother. And so here Adam is. Here Adam is. He chose to please his wife. He chose to eat the fruit. And now one son is dead. And the other is his murderer. Verse 9, the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Oh man, he's even worse than his father. His father admitted what he had done, but he blamed it on someone? No, 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 not Cain. It's like, he said, I don't know. Lie number one. And then, am I my brother's keeper? So he's not just lying to God, but then he tells God that God has no right to ask him. You imagine speaking to God that way. But let me tell you, brothers and sisters, every newspaper, every web page, every class you take, that is the narrative and the meta-narrative of the worldling. He is accusing God of evil all the time. He defies God. And don't you act like a simpleton that you don't see it. Trust it when a worldling tells you what their intellectual thoughts are. When they come out with their mouth, believe them. It's who they are. And so this is this is. This is Cain. Am I my brother's keeper? And you know, there are two kinds of men. One who is his brother's hater, and the other who is his brother's keeper. And rightly did Cain confess he was not his brother's keeper. He had murdered his brother. Sibling love or sibling rivalry, that's your choice. We care for our brothers and sisters, we love and serve them, or we are jealous of them, we hate them, and we kill them. You know, I, I often make the comment that I think women are perfect. But I don't really. And one day I knew women weren't perfect was when a widow friend of ours asked me at a wedding reception in, a, in, a, in the local Baptist church in the basement, she came to me in despair and she said, would you go deal with my daughter so-and-so? And, you know, I felt sorry for these daughters. Actually, no, this, I'm not sure this was before, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure they yet had lost their father. But anyhow, their father wasn't there and so she came to me, asked me to go deal with this daughter. 
So I went in the room, and as far as I knew, I'd known this daughter for probably seven years by that time, the time she was little. And, you know, I, you know, what's not to like about a little girl? You know, every one of them is sweet. Every one of them is kind. Every one of them reminds me of my mother and my wife and my daughters, you know. So I went in the room thinking we had some minor kerfuffle or something, you know, that it was just, and, oh, man, I, be, I stared in the, in the mouth of hell. This, this young woman, she was by now a teenager, and she hated her sister. I had never seen it. And I mean, she hated her with a perfect hatred. And immediately I could see why. And I won't go into the details, but, and it wasn't because her, other, her sister was nasty or hostile or anything. But jealousy. And I've never forgotten that. You know, if Jesus says that the second greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves, there's no neighbor we have more of an obligation to love than our brother or sister. They're closer to us than anybody else. And yet, if I were to go around this room right now to every family represented here, I think we could come up with unbelievably nasty stories of hatred. I remember the time David tried to kill me, my brother, with a fork. <laughs> he came up the stairs, and he was intent on putting it through my chest. And I was six years older than he was, so I just grabbed his arms, and I said, David, if you weren't a hemophiliac... And I just held his arms until he realized he was not going to be able to stab me to death. And then I let go of his... You talk to David Carell, Pastor Carell, about the swinging of shovels in the barn and stuff like that. I'm sure many of you could tell stories. And the sad thing is, it doesn't just happen when you're little, it continues into adulthood. And I have to tell you, over the course of my life, how many fights I've had with my brother David. And they've been helpful, helpful fights for me. Because nobody knows my sins clearer than my brother. And for the first 75 years of my life, I resented that. But now at 76, I finally... Anyhow, up until just a couple weeks ago, I've resented it, but I've gotten better than that now. Well, the truth is, the last couple of years, we've stopped fighting. And so I went to this conference, and don't ask me why I went to this conference. It was, it was necessary, although some people think it wasn't, it was. But then when I came back, I had to write up this blog post about the conference, and I kept writing and writing and writing and writing, and I wrote this long, long blog post about the conference, and I finally thought maybe I was near done. So I picked up the phone, called my brother, said, David, listen to it and tell me what you think. I get done. He says, Tim, that's awful. Well, by, by now, I had probably 10 hours invested in the thing. And, you know, you have a lot of time invested in something. You don't want your brother telling you it's awful. 
But I went back to the drawing board and I started over again. I worked the next week on it, off and on. Finally felt like I was nearing done. And I called up David and, and David said, Tim, you're not going to want to hear this, but it's awful. And then, I mean, that was bad. But then he said to me, what are you telling everybody that you've been in Africa, you've been in Boston, you know this man, you know this man. What are you telling people? Well, I was showing people how humble I was. <laughs> you know? And it's like I was completely deflated, you know? My brother is telling me that I was a proud you-know-what. And that I was parading my pride in front of everybody on, on the internet. And man, that would have made me angry. And listen, two years ago, if I'd been angry, I would have told you that, okay? I'm just telling you, I've finally gotten to the point where I'm so thankful to God for my brother David. Because he just tells me what's wrong. And so I sat there silent on the phone. I was absolutely silent. And David, then thinking I was angry, he said, well, you can go ahead and put it up if you want. Well, I didn't want to put it up, and so I was still silent. He said, Tim, are you there? I said, yeah, I'm here. And I said, you know, the thing that bothers me is not what you said, because you're absolutely right. The thing that bothers me is I'm 61, and I'm still sinning like that. And it's so utterly disgusting. This is what scripture tells us about a brother. It says in Proverbs 17, 17, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Adversity means uh, troubles. When things are hard, that's what a brother's born for, when things are hard. Johnson talks about what a friend is. And he says a friend is someone who will stand with you when no one else will. Well, a brother will stand with you when a friend won't. And then there are those of you who hate your brothers, who hate your sisters. And Cain hated Abel. And so what did Cain do? He killed him. God had seen his despondent face. God knew what, what roaring lion was at the door of Cain's heart. God warned him against it. And Cain absolutely had the freedom to not kill his brother. And if you think being reformed means that you know, if it's destined for you, then it's destined for you and there's nothing you can do about it. You could not be more wrong. God gave him a command he could have obeyed. How would he have obeyed it? The way he would have obeyed it is what Augustine says, Lord, give me a command and then help me to obey your command. And did you notice in Hebrews it talks about how Abel did what God 
what pleased God by faith. By faith. But Cain was not about to have faith in God. He was going to take matters into his own hand. And so he killed his brother. And so Cain is cursed by God. Why? Well, it says in Isaiah 1.15, When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. And so God says to Cain what? God says to Cain that he's going to curse him. And how, what is the curse that he gives him? Well, this is what God says. He went from asking him a question, where's your brother, to judgment. And listen, when God moves from question to judgment, it's over. It's over for you, okay? He said, what have you done? He wasn't asking what he'd done. He was saying, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now listen, come on people, come on. Blood cries out to God from the ground. God sees blood that man hides. That blood cries out to God for judgment. This should make us tremble. All the blood of the unborn and all the blood of the feeble and all the blood of the elderly, we have murdered. Not them. We have murdered. And it cries out to God from the holding tanks and the sewers and the sewage treatment facilities and the waterways and the river deltas and yes, also from the crawl spaces of our homes. From our cemeteries. Listen, Abel was not lost track of by God. God sees. And no innocent blood, no blood is ever lost track of by God. The blood of every innocent victim cries out to God from the ground for justice. We read in Revelation chapter 6. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And you look through Scripture and you just see again and again and again that God is keeping track of all the blood. All the blood. And we think it's nothing to have Planned Parenthood. We even give to United Way. We don't think anything of driving up and down College Avenue. And in and out, in and out they go killing their unborn children. We think nothing about using the birth control pill. Absolutely clear, statistically significant number of times it works by preventing the new child from implanting on his mother's womb, or it causes that little child to be sloughed off of the womb. And we don't think anything. I mean, you know, can God really care about a little, little piece of protoplasm? 
You know, can God really care about something that I can't relate to? We use IUDs, we use patches, we use ECPs, and then we act as if the issue is the Supreme Court. Listen, those little ones in our wombs that we jeopardize and kill because of our use of chemicals, those ones are innocent blood in the ground that you and I will answer for. Make no mistake about this, because you don't feel like it's significant, doesn't make any difference to God. Blood is blood. And it's not the blood of a chimpanzee. It's not the blood of protoplasm. It's man. It's woman in the womb. You say, yeah, but it's so young it doesn't matter. And I say, all the blood will be seen by God. It doesn't matter what you think. It doesn't matter what your doctor says. It doesn't matter if your doctor's a Christian, he says. It doesn't matter what your pastor says. It doesn't matter what the theologians say. God keeps perfect track of the blood. And what he said about Abel, and who was crying out for Abel's blood? Do you think Cain was going to God, asking God to deal with Cain? <laughs> no. Listen to what Calvin says about this. Calvin says, God first shows that he is cognizant of the deeds of men. What does cognizant mean? He is aware of the deeds. He sees the deeds of men. All right? Though no one should complain of or accuse him. In other words, nobody's taking it to court. Nobody's saying, God, do you see? God sees. He doesn't need an advocate. He doesn't need a court case filed. He doesn't need somebody to file a lawsuit, he sees. Secondly, he holds the life of man too dear to allow innocent blood to be shed with impunity. He loves man too much to allow man's blood to be shed without consequences. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You think that what God is willing to give his son's blood up for He's going to let us trample on? Thirdly, God cares for the pious, not only while they leave, but even after their death. However, earthly judges may sleep unless an accuser appeals to them. Yet even when he who is injured is silent, the injuries themselves are alone sufficient to arouse God to inflict punishment. This is a wonderfully sweet consolation to good men who are unjustly harassed when they hear that their own sufferings, which they silently endure, go into the presence of God of their own accord to demand vengeance. Abel was Speechless. Speechless. There's nobody more speechless than an unborn child who's killed. Nobody's going to write a book about an uncle baby doe, like an Uncle Tom. You know, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Nobody's going to do that with an unborn child.
It's a wonderfully sweet consolation to good men who are unjustly harassed when they hear that their own sufferings, which they silently endure, go into the presence of God of their own accord to demand vengeance. Abel was speechless when his throat was being cut. But after death, the voice of his blood was more vehement than any eloquence of the orator. And so God cursed Cain. And here is the curse that God pronounced against Cain. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. The ground's been polluted, and it won't support you anymore. And you will never have a home. You will be a perpetual loiter subject to being arrested. Wherever you go, there will be no home. Nobody will receive you. The ground won't give you food. Now, how does Cain respond to this? Is it a just judgment? Yes, it's just because God gives it. And God's the definition of justice. How does, how does Cain respond to God's judgment? Well, he responds in the way worldlings respond to God all the time. He denies that he's going to get caught. He refuses to hear the warning. He refuses to resist sin crouching at his door. And now when God gives the judgment, what does he do? He immediately tells God that God is unfair. Because what does he say? My punishment, verse 13, is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. And this reminds you of, of, uh, of uh, uh, <laughs> oh, what's his name? Oh, which man in Lazarus? dives. It reminds you of the rich man. Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham and the rich man goes to hell and he, he wants water. They won't give him water. He says, send that lackey that was at my gate that used to get the droppings off my table to give me something to drink. And God says, no, nobody can cross the chasm. And then he says, well then send somebody back to warn my brothers so that they don't come to this, to this hellish hell. No, nobody can go back. He says, no, no, no. Send them back. Because if somebody comes back from the dead, then they'll believe. Well, what is he saying? What he's saying is, you haven't been fair. You didn't give them a fair chance. You didn't give them enough reason to repent and to turn to Christ. And he says, no, but if somebody comes back from the dead, they will believe and you remember the response is, no, if they did not believe the word of God, they won't believe even if somebody comes back from the dead. And then what? Jesus comes back from the dead. And did they believe? No, 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 a thousand times now. The Lord responds this way. The Lord said to him, verse 15, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. 
Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So where do you live? When I turned 40, I was in Bloomington. I'd just come a year or two earlier. And we had a rock and roll star, a punk band rock and roll star in our church. And the church decided to throw a big party for me at 40th birthday. And they all gathered in the sanctuary and we had a party. And the high point of the party for me was what? Well, this man knew that one of my favorite all-time songs is what? I have finally found a place to live in the presence of the Lord. I love Eric Clapton. And so they got up and they played that song. And so where do you live? Did you read, did you hear what it just said about Cain? It just said that Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. Where do you live? Where do you live? And why? Why would you want to live outside the presence of the Lord? You say, I'm dirty. And he won't have me. And I say, hey, (laughs) I sound like a broken record, but let me say it again. The only people who will be had by God are the dirty. He will not have the clean. Because Jesus said, I have not come for the righteous, but for sinners. And so if you're dirty, you're qualified. If you're clean, you're not. And who was dirty and who was clean? Well, clearly Abel was dirty and knew it because he offered from his heart. His heart had gratitude and faith. Clearly, Cain was absolutely clean. He told God that. Am I my brother's keeper? And so, listen, dear brother and sister, come to Jesus. He will not turn you out. Satan is roaming around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. You don't need to have a crestfallen face. You don't need to be depressed. If you do what is right, you will smile. And you say, but I don't find it within myself to do what is right. And I say, yeah, that, that, see, that's part of being dirty. And so what do you do? You do what Augustine said. He said, Lord, command me what you will, and then give me obedience to your command. You go to God for it. And then he pours out on you the righteousness of Jesus. He pours out on you the blood of Jesus that washes you from all sin. He applies to your account the death of Jesus so you don't have to die. And then he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, And day by day, your wife will like you more and more. Because you'll be sanctified. (laughs) Progressive sanctification. 
And she may complain a lot of times that it's too slow for her taste. But over the years, you'll look back and you'll see, finally, you don't get mad at your brother, you just get depressed about yourself. Right? Come to Jesus. He says himself, those who come to me, what? I will what? Come on. Never. I will never cast out. Never. Okay. I think next week I won't be preaching, so it will be shorter. But this is such a precious, precious text from God. 